Hey everyone, welcome to Spark Sessions Podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode. Today I have the honor of introducing my colleague, my friend, Maruka Rivers. Maruka is a licensed clinical social worker, a certified clinical trauma professional, and a visionary. The chief visionary officer and clinical director of her own group practice, M. Rivers Awakenings Healing Collective. On today's episode, Maruka leads us in a conversation about bridging the gap between micro and macro work with a focus on really staying at the intersection of social justice and mental health. What Maruka takes us on a journey through is the importance of social workers really remaining in that intersection. And how do we do that? It's really important that we focus on decolonizing therapy. So thank you for being on this journey with us and enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to this season of Spark Sessions. I'm really excited today for our guest. We have with us Maruka Rivers. Maruka is my colleague and my friend, a fellow social worker, have learned so much from you. And so I'm really glad to share you in this space and to share you with the world. And we're going to be talking a lot today about decolonizing social work practice because Maruka is an LCSW and does private practice along with academic work and community work, strengthening organizations around really dismantling barriers to mental health and social welfare services. So we've got a lot of great discussions to have. So thank you for saying yes, Maruka, and welcome to Spark Sessions. Most certainly. Thank you for asking me and having me. It was an easy yes. Um, I'm excited to be here and excited for our conversation. Great. Thanks so much for saying yes and for coming on. It's great to meet you. I um, love to, to be able to meet uh, Michelle's colleagues. So we'll just jump right in. And I'm sure that Michelle has told you a little bit about this season of Spark Sessions, how we're focusing on social workers. We're really, both of us are very proud social workers. We're very proud of our profession. Um, and also know that there's a lot, a lot of parts of our profession that need work, right? Um, and we are really focusing on how social workers are bridge builders this season. First of all, tell us about your decolonizing therapy focus. I want to hear more about that. Followed by, how are you bridging the clinical social work experience with a macro experience. So how are you bridging that divide between macro and micro? Absolutely. Uh, so first kind of thinking about decolonization work. So um, I'm someone who lives on lots of different margins <laughs> and marginalized communities. And so the first place that it comes from is just acknowledging who I am and how I show up in the work. Um, and I think often um, we, you know, we talk a lot about diversity, we talk about social justice and social work practice, um, but it's often with a white social worker in mind, and then maybe people of color as clients, uh, maybe other folks who are living in lots of marginalized communities. And most certainly that is a dynamic that shows up in social work practice. Um, but there are so many other people contributing to social work and folks living on the margins. And so for me, I have to acknowledge where social work comes from in this country. Um, our country is built on uh, colonized land, right, and genocide um, and colonizing people to get uh, people uh, here through the post uh, the Atlantic slave trade. And so our systems and our institutions have a history of that. It doesn't mean that we haven't done any reconciliation. Uh, it doesn't mean that we haven't addressed some of those things, but we, we need to continue to do that. 
And so for me, within social work practice, I know that we need to look at some of the colonized ways and beliefs of social work practice and how we have borrowed from that framework from the institutions that we're embedded in um, and sometimes have caused harm in our work and our practice. Um, for me, it takes a look at indigenous people and not necessarily just people who are indigenous uh, here in this land, the United States, but indigenous people across the world who have many healing traditions. Um, you know, we talk a lot about for example, mindfulness. Well, we know that mindfulness has existed before we packaged it maybe with CBT or um, DBT or other things like that. And so decolonization seeks to acknowledge that a lot of these healing practices existed uh, in indigenous communities, um, that we borrowed them. Sometimes, unfortunately, we did steal some of those things. Uh, so we need to first give credit and acknowledge that uh, they come from a place that they're rooted and embedded in and cultural and spiritual traditions for folks. Uh, and then we also need to acknowledge um, that we can use those practices if we have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, and then we also have to think about how we have shown up in ways that may have created barriers for folks to access social work uh, services and kind of decrease those barriers through decolonization work. I love that. I wrote uh, acknowledging who I am and how I show up in the work. Um, and how powerful that is for all of us to be able to do and to teach our students how to do as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, it, what, it, what does it feel like to, because it feels like to me when you, when you describe your work that you really are sitting on that macro-micro divide. Talk to me about that. Like, how does it feel to show up in, in, um, in, in your clinical practice with this uh, piece of social justice the macro piece of social justice coming with you. What does that mean for, for you, Maruka, as a clinician? Absolutely. You know, I am a, a trained clinician, sought out a program that was clinical, 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 right? Uh, and I believe in the clinical work, but I also um, am very aware that it all goes together and we have to do macro work as clinicians and, and, and folks who specialize in macro work have to understand the individuals and the needs at the individual and micro level as well. Um, so for me, I build that bridge by, by being aware. You know, what am I seeing as trends, for example, if folks are coming in, so I, I teach this to my students as well. You know, I love, I'm a trauma specialist, right? So special in trauma. And so um, I love getting in the middle and doing narrative work. I do act at um, acceptance and commitment therapy, internal family systems. But I really want to understand, you know, if I'm having five people come in with the same experience, for example, maybe they're traumatized because there's no lights in their neighborhood and they keep tripping over the same uh, sidewalk. So I want to work with that individual to help with their hypervigilance and um, to help them figure out how they can feel safe and be safe. But I also want to understand why is there no light in this community? Um, why are five people tripping over this thing? So why are, are so many people having this traumatizing experience? So it's not enough for me as a clinician just to help that individual with their trauma experience, but then to take in the macro work and figure out how do we decrease the traumatization experiences that people are having? How do we become aware of how society is playing a role in traumatizing folks. Um, and I, I feel like that is our work. So we talk about individually as clinicians, how do we work ourselves out of a job, right? So we, we talk about that uh, process determination that a good clinical social worker is working themselves out of a job. And I think we should be doing that on a macro level, that we should be decreasing the experiences that people are having, that they actually need to come in for some of this clinical work. I love that. Fix the like. Why is the, why are people continuing to trip here? Because there's no lights. Like, why is there no? Why are there no lights? I love mm -hmm. that analogy, Marika. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, I mean, this is, this, in my opinion, is what makes Maruka so special in the work that we do. Um, because I, um, have rethought sort of what clinical social work practice looks like. So Chris and I have talked a lot about this, Maruka, because we found ourselves in our MSW program sort of on those that border of like, where do we really want to serve? And neither one of us really wanted to do what we were, were hearing and kind of being pushed to more of that clinical work and what that looked like at that time. And so Maruka has helped me with a lot of the students that we work with. And I would love to spend a few minutes talking about this because this is for social workers across the country, helping us sort of redefine what clinical social work practice means and looks like. Can you share with us sort of how you um, carry that and talk to students um, within community agencies and within our programs about that perspective? So, you know, I think a lot of the students that I I work with and interact with, they come into our programs expecting to be an outpatient therapist, for example, right? And that's absolutely a great way to be a clinical social worker. Um, There are many people who need that work, um, but there are people who are never going to get to that office. Uh, They're never going to find themselves in that chair. Um, And so the first thing I do is unpack if you really want to make an impact um, in various communities. So, for example, our program and uh, the JMSW program has a multicultural uh, framework for clinical social work practice. And what I need to understand about cl- multicultural practice is not just working with people's different cultures and different kinds of people. It's recognizing that those different people are going to have different needs. Um, and for some of those people coming into an office that has the label social work or mental health on that door, they're not going to come in that door. So the first level is saying, who am I missing? If I only sit in this office, if I only put this one title over my work, who am I missing? How do I make this work accessible to folks? And so I feel like one way to think about that is got to locate ourselves in other places and not just the, the mental health door, so to speak, because if folks are not going to come to that door, you're not going to be an effective social worker. Um, I also think about it in terms of, so what is, what, we, what is it that we say we're doing as social workers, right? So as social workers, our code doesn't just tell us we're going to pick up the DSM and use it. And in fact, our code doesn't say anything about the DSM. That doesn't mean that we don't use it. doesn't mean it's a bad tool. It is a tool. And I think as, as clinical social workers, we can't divorce ourselves from being social workers, right? So we can be clinical and we can be social workers at the same time. So I think that if we Think about the DSM and diagnostics and um, using some of those treatment methods as one part of clinical social work. We have to say, how are we including social work in this as well? So how are we including that social justice? How are we uh, including uh, cultural awareness and cultural humility in the process? And so I think those are some ways to start to unpack how can I show up as a clinical social worker in in a setting that may not be that one office that doesn't say mental health across the the door? Maruka, I I was sitting here thinking that really just resonated with me. I, I, I do in full disclosure, do have my um, LCSW. Uh, however, I got it kind of as a bargaining tool, which is a whole other story, but that whole idea of not, we cannot divorce ourselves from social workers because we are clinicians because we are social workers first. And I, I get this idea and this feeling from past experience and also hearing it that some individuals come into social work get their master's in social work, for example, because it is a path to becoming a clinician, is one of many paths to becoming a therapist. However, it's a therapist with a social work background. So we can't, we can't just be therapists. 
not that there's anything wrong with being a therapist, but at, as an LCSW, we are doing clinical work with a base knowledge and ethical um, responsibility of a social worker. And I think sometimes students have a hard time connecting those two things. That if your end goal is this, that's great and that's fine, but you're still coming from um, a social work lens. Absolutely. I, I think that is really important to remember um, and to teach. And I think we have to also press our institutions, our educational institutions, to, to teach from that framework and perspective as well, that we are social workers first and that we're adding the clinic the clinical piece to that? Um, and what does that look like? And then how does that separate us from other disciplines who can show up and be therapists? I think we need to begin to have um, a pride in ourselves as social workers. I think that has sometimes been lost along the way um, so that we can have um, that identity. I know the uh, CSWE Council of Social Work Education, um, EPOS, um, competencies change from year to year. I know we're working on uh, 2022 competencies right now, um, but I believe it was the 2008 uh, companies number one said identify as a social worker. That was the competency number one. And I, I, I think it's okay to have professional uh, and ethical identity. I think that's, that's now, we're in 2015 right now, um, the EPOS, that, that's competency one. But I really hate when we lost identify as a social worker. Um, as competency one, because it was so poignant to me and it was so, it really speaks to what we're saying that the first thing you got to come in the, in the door with an identity as a social worker and then add these other pieces. And so I think that's really important. And I think we need to really continue to make sure our academic institutions are even helping students navigate that. And that really made me think about, you talked a little bit about how you sort of bring in um things within your own practice. And then we also know you've talked about how you work with students, because not only are you doing private practice work, you're also in an academic setting, just like Chris and I both are, right? And 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 I think that it's important because we talk a lot about, we were all trained pretty much very similarly, education-wise. And now we're sort of having to back out of that and unlearn a lot of things. And so what do you find the most difficult aspect of doing this type of work? More around like the decolonizing work, whether it's with students or also maybe just in practice in general. Because I know this is still kind of new and challenging when we talk about it. And I don't know that everybody's ready to work through that. So what do you find the most difficult aspect of doing this type of work? I think that's a great question. And I could, I could give you a list of lots of difficult things. Um, <laughs> I, I would say one that rises to the top is, is where is value placed? And I think that really speaks to the heart of decolonization, because when we think about what has happened with uh, colonized folks, marginalized folks, oppressed folks, is that there has been value stripped that we have decided who's valuable and not valuable as a society. And so I think that decolonized practice, um, thinking about how to do your practice in a decolonized way isn't often valued uh, by some of the institutions and, and, and folks out there. And so I think it is trying to get folks to really see the value in this work when, when the people, the folks that this work is really connected to have been greatly devalued in society. Yeah, and dehumanize. And can we, as through white lens, through white training, just come in and decolonize social work practice? It's not that easy, right? So what, what do we need to do as a collective in terms of social work 
educators. I mean, what are some things there that you think um, is helpful for us to talk about? Because I know I'm like on my own process. I mean, you know, I'm trying to raise my own awareness and do my own consciousness building around things. But I think, you know, we talk about it, but what what do we do? Great question. There's lots of things to do. Another another long list. But I think even you mentioned, you know, as white folk that are in the work, um, I think it's acknowledging the whitewashing that social work has had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's hard. You know, we don't like to talk about race. We don't like to talk about um, the impact of race. It, um, it was still a very taboo uh, conversation, but mm-hmm. we do have to acknowledge that that social work has been whitewashed and that it has this face um, of particularly white womanhood. Um, yes. And what does that mean? And how how has particularly white womanhood uh, shown up in some of the harm that folks on the margins have experienced? And it, it's very different than sort of mac- masculine based or man based um, sort of uh, race. And mm-hmm. so we have to also unpack that because I definitely think, you know, you think about the history of settlement houses and, 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 um, and, and social work and things of that nature. We have to think about what were the motivations of people who were showing up. We have to unpack that. I think what we struggle with is we cannot often uh, be critical of things without thinking we're saying it's bad or wrong. Um, you know, I, mm. I think that there, we can acknowledge harm, we can uh, acknowledge what has happened, and not throw away everything. I, I, I'm a proud social worker. Uh, social work has been my calling uh, in life, and so I wouldn't trade it for anything. But I, I can be very critical of, of social work. Mm-hmm. I can take an analysis of it. And I think anything that's worth it to us, anything that we do find valuable, we have to have critical analysis with, um, because that allows us to grow. Um, that allows us to find some of our faults and flaws um, and allows us to just get better. I love that so much. And I was sitting here going, yes, yes, when you're talking, just thinking about the difficulty of um, of all of us to hold multiple truths at the same time. We talk about this in anti-racism work, right? That you hold multiple truths and they're all true. And we are taught and, and raised to believe that there is one truth and then everything else is other people might have truths, but that's not the one truth. And unlearning that piece is such a critical point to what you're saying here around, yes, we can both be very proud. We can be very proud of being social workers and very critical, right? We can critically analyze something because we also are proud of it, right? It doesn't have to, these are two things that don't have to oppose one another. In fact, they can and should marry together. That if you are proud to do something and proud of, of, of who you are, then critically analyzing that is not, is not a negative thing. In fact, it pushes us to be better. Yeah. And it also made me think about something I've learned recently too, is that, you know, we've talked about this with several of our guests, you know, um, just how our train of thinking has changed. But one of the things recently that was brought to my attention is that, you know, we're constantly doing assessments and we're constantly doing needs assessments, but we're leaving out the power analysis. And what I felt Mm. like I heard you talking a little bit about is that, and what you also were saying, Chris, is like, if we are going to go in and do the work, we also have to do a power analysis of who we are and how we show up and how the profession shows up. And there really shouldn't be anything that protects us from that because we are Mm. wanting to do that with all the other systems you know, that are operating the way that they're operating. And so why do we 
not need to take that critical power analysis of the work, you know, that we do. And so, I mean, you know, it's just, it's, I, I'm excited to talk about this because I don't know how many social workers have this conversation. You know, again, a lot of us have been trained, but if you're not doing your own consciousness raising in your own work, then in your agencies, are you talking about this? How is this coming out? If you're supervising students, how is, you know, this, your own impression, your own socialization then being shared? And so, you know, it's just something I really love to be in a space to talk about um, and figure out, you know, what, what are some other things we need to be, to be thinking about? But thank you for, for all of that, for sharing all of that. Marika, I'm sitting here thinking that, you know, sometimes I'm sure you felt that your students tell you this too, that there just seems to be so much, right? Like, where do we get started? Because and, and often students are like, I would like a handbook. And if you could give me a handbook and tell me where to get started, that'd be great. And wouldn't we also like a handbook? Um, there are just, there are so many things, right? There are so many things that need work. There are so many places that uh, need support and a place for us to show up. And I wonder kind of in the midst of all of the things that where we could put our energy, I wonder what keeps you connected and hopeful. I, I would say two things and they're, and they're connected. Uh, the first is, um, you know, at some point all of us are going to need a social worker. <laughs> uh, I truly believe that um, I've seen it. And so I, I, I want to continue to um, grow this profession uh, change this work so that um, when I'm in need of a social worker, it is something that is truly equitable uh, mm-hmm. for me, truly shows, uh, meets my needs. And that's not just that self-centered. When I say me, I don't just mean the uh, the literal me, someone like me, you know, the mm-hmm. person who um, moves in the world similar to me, that it, it may not be me. Um, and I would say that that second piece is connected and that's just our shared humanity. Mm-hmm. Um and, and so I, I love that in our work, we talk about human behavior and not client behavior. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, say, I say that to my students often. This is not client behavior. We're talking about this is human behavior. Mm. We're all implicated in this. We're all implicated in the needs that bring folks to social work. We're all implica- implicated in the social issues, um, the institutional issues, the society at large. And so social justice isn't just for social work clients. Social justice is for the humanity of the world. Hmm. Veruca, I feel like I need to audit one of your classes, by the way. So if you could share your fall schedule with me, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, that's really, that's really good. The yeah. shared humanity piece, like so crucial. Yeah. I mean, nuggets, there's always nuggets. I, I, we're going to have to start just putting them on t-shirts and we've, we've laughed and joked about that. Um, but yeah, so thank you um, for, for that. Um, and then it makes me just think about, so in your work, um, you know, you said you want to keep building the profession. You want to keep uh, creating change. So what are you embarking on um, that is going to allow you to have some influence in that area? Wonderful. That's a great question. So um, right now I'm in the process of building and scaling um, a group collective practice. Uh, so in Rivers Awakenings Healing Collective. Um, so I'll be switching from just in rivers awakenings and I'm really excited about that. Um, that will allow me to, uh, bring in new clinicians, um, to, who are really interested in decolonizing the work that we're doing, um, and really about this work. 
Um, and then also continuing with some projects that I've been working on, uh, our social work and library project that we have in, in Greensboro and High Point, North Carolina. I'm trying to figure out how I can continue to stay connected to that, what's the best way to do that. Um, but I would say those are the two projects that I'm building and growing that are really about this work. Within the Healing Collective, There, uh, we do have um, outpatient private practice virtual therapy offerings, but we also are going to work on um, connecting with community agencies who want to learn how to do this work, um, doing trainings, connecting with the university, um, maybe looking at coalition building um, for other folks in, in the um, area who want to be about this work. And then with the library social work, um, to me, that's decolonized practices you can get. Um, I just uh, talked to some students today who, who are placed in those uh, settings. Um, and I mean, man, their practice this year has been uh, phenomenal. And mm -hmm. so I think we are, can continue to grow that. Um, they have done things like low barrier service, which is a part of decolonizing practice. We don't want to create a lot of barriers for folks getting access to the services. Um, they have done things like actually meet folks in a park, uh, you know, um, and so it's not sitting in that office at two o'clock waiting for Timmy to show and then Timmy doesn't show and then you write a note and says, Timmy's non-compliant, but you, you <laughs> find out what Timmy needs. <laughs> And uh, you go find him. And so um, they're doing that work. And those are two projects really near and dear to me. That's great. Timmy's non-compliant. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. How many times have I read that in, uh, in case reviews and things like that? Mm -hmm. like, is he non-compliant or maybe Timmy doesn't have a car to get to you? Like, what is yeah. it? Yeah. And, and the implication of someone being labeled as non-compliant, right? We, we know the implications of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm just excited. Yeah, I, I was saying language is such a key part of this work too. changing our language, uh, being critical of the language that we use. I, I, in classes, I, I say, I'm going to push back on your language to students often. They, they, they know early on that, that I will help them uh, shape their language uh, because it's so important. And again, we think about colonization, right? The stripping of people's languages was a part of that process. And so even in our work, um, we may not be able to go back and get those indigenous languages, but we can change how we talk about folks um, and to um, be more collaborative. When we talk about building the bridge, we're not just building the bridge in the, uh, the macro and clinical world. We have to build those bridges with clients and client communities, and we have to do that uh, often with changing our language. Yeah, and that's why I said I'm just super excited, even though I know this is hard work, but it's hard work. And like, it's not going to always feel good, but I'm just glad that, that we are coming together and, um, you know, addressing these things for the profession that at least I know the three of us are very passionate about. I always tell people I'm super passionate about my professional identity and I wouldn't change it either, but I, I just know that there's things that we need to change. So being that this season is focused on social workers, and we're hoping that we're going to have a lot of social workers that are listening and social work students, what message, what takeaway message or call to action message do you have for them that they can maybe more uh, be more closely connected to decolonizing social work practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it goes back to the, to the things that draw me. I was thinking about some quotes and uh, something that Yama Van Zandt says that, that um, really speaks to me. She says, I'm not my sister's keeper, but I am my sister. And so I think that really speaks to that wow. piece about, you know, you can't be in social work just for the clients. 
You know, that's a part. And we say that I'm here for the clients. I think we have to go beyond that. We have to go. We, we have to be here in social work for the world. And in order to do that, you have to see yourself in the world. It can't just be, again, client behavior. It's human behavior. And then human behavior needs human solution. Well, I think you've wrapped it up, Marika. I can't think of a better <laughs> bow to put on the end of that. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing your brilliance and um, your thoughts with us and for teaching us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you. It's nice to meet you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, you know, um, people will continue to ask the questions and um, keep us posted on uh, the launch of your, you know, group centered um, healing and the collective. And hopefully, you know, we can continue to share and we'll put your information on the website. So hopefully people can, can find you and connect with the work that you're doing. So thank you again for, for joining us this season on our podcast. We appreciate you so much. Are you a social worker that would like to be featured on season two of Spark Sessions podcast or know any social workers who are out there turning advocacy into action? Please let us know or just keep in touch. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spark Sessions podcast or Twitter at Spark Sessions pod.